we've got a really heavy text this morning, probably something that many people have either read this or talked about this text or quoted this text, and sometimes there can be some confusion in some way, shape, and form about what James is saying versus what Paul has always said. So I really want to ask the Lord to bless our time this morning and really just to speak to our hearts. And so let me go ahead and pray for us right now. God in heaven, I want to thank you for using James to help us to understand the importance of a faith that is demonstrated by our works. I pray that you would protect us here today so that we would recognize that you have made it very clear that we are saved by grace through faith. And if that is true in our lives, then Lord, it will be seen in our lives. So I pray that today you would use this text, use our time together to help us uncover what it means to be a fully devoted follower of you. We love you. Bless our time together in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been around Northwest for a long time, you know that we passionately believe in the gospel of grace. That it is by grace through faith that you are saved. Amen? Okay, that's what we rest in. That's what we believe. Now, when we take a look at the scripture and what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, this is what he says. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James says in our text this morning that we will get to, but I want to make sure that we, we say this up front so that we do a lot of unpacking before we jump in to the actual uh, message today. So then James says in verse 24 of chapter 2, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And there is a war. Maybe even denominations have even split over this. People wrestle with this and have a conflict with this because of what Paul has said and what James has said. Are they a contradiction? No, they are not. They're, they're not a contradiction. James is writing primarily to a highly religious group of people who don't do anything and rest in, well, I go to church. I got married in church. They're highly religious but they're not doing anything. So James calls them out. He says, are you truly a follower? Paul, on the other hand, is writing prim primarily to Gentiles. Never heard of what it means to be a, a follower of God. He's dealing with these non-Christians and newly converted pagans, and they're all terrified. Oh my gosh, am I going to hell? Oh my, what do I need to do? Do I need to sacrifice a bull? Do I need to be reincarnated? Do I need to get baptized? Do I need to speak in tongues? He starts listing all these things. And Paul is like, no, uh, Jesus did everything. Jesus did everything in order for you to be a follower of Jesus. He did everything. Are you sure? Yes, I'm very sure. Jesus did everything. That's Paul. The book of Galatians is a bunch of people who are saying, no, I'm, I'm really not satisfied that Jesus did everything. So what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to add to it. And Paul is saying, no, don't do that. Because he's approaching them in initial salvation, what he's talking about. So let me, let me just sort of help paint a picture for us this morning to make sure that we understand that this truly, what James is saying and what Paul is saying, is simply not a contradiction. Let's just say, for instance, that you are at the doctor with your son or daughter. Okay, you're at the doctor's office and you're in the waiting room and you are waiting, right? So you're in the waiting room. You wait. You're trying to get your son or daughter to be seen 
And if you're one of our students, then you're getting ready to be seen and you're sitting there with one of your parents. And then let's just say for random sake that this doctor, is, his name is Jeff, Dr. Rutledge, just for random sake, right? Let's just say just for, just for the sake of argument here, we'll go, this is Dr. Jeff, all right? So it's his office and you're trying to get your child seen and so you're sitting out there. And then all of a sudden, you overhear, because the walls are very thin, you overhear Dr. Jeff telling his 10-year-old patient that you need to exercise. You need to work out. You then hear Dr. Jeff leave the door, leave this room, go into another room, still you're waiting, and you hear him tell another 10-year-old, hey, listen, you need to stop working out. You hurt your leg. You need to stop being active. And you have to ask yourself the question, is Dr. Jeff, is he contradicting himself? And we would say, no, he's not. Because he knows the goal is to help the patient, and he looks at the patient and understands that perspective, and he looks at them and says, this is what you're dealing with, this is what you're faced with, this is what I'm going to address. The same way that what's going on with James and Paul is that they're dealing with people that are fighting two different sides of an argument. And so you got one guy who says, in the doctor's office, you got one guy, hey, you need to run. Hey, you don't need to run. You're hurt. You have a broken leg. So with one person, he's saying, do something. And the other person, he's saying, I don't need you to do anything. It's not a contradiction at all. And so Paul and James are standing back to back with each other, fighting for a unified gospel to the people that God has placed them in front of. James, a religious bunch of people that are subscribing to easy believism. All I just say is, I believe in him, but our life has no evidence that we truly believe in him. And Paul, like Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation, is fighting against the idea that we can earn our salvation, which is not of, not of God and not of Scripture and not of the Bible. It's not there. So James, again, is fighting against this easy believism. So what are we fighting against today? I think we're fighting against both. I think we fight against both. But for today's sake, what we're going to do is we're going to work with with, with how James is fighting against this easy believism and this verbal, this verbal ascent that has no bearing on the way that we live our lives. So we're jumping into James's side of the fight, which we have been for a long time. A couple weeks ago, he said, I want you to be hearers and doers of the word. I want you to go into the, the trial and I want, you to, I want you to see that Jesus is in the trial so that you don't find joy in the trial, you find joy in Jesus in the trial. Okay, he talked about last week where we, we want to be able to demonstrate our faith by how we take care of and respond to the poor and the needy. That comes up again in this week. So what we want more than anything here at Northwest, our LG, our staff, myself as your teaching pastor, more than anything else I want for you is radical obedience to the commands of Christ. That's what is your, that's for your good. That's for his glory. That we demonstrate our faith by doing everything Jesus tells us to do. If he says to go, we go. If he tells us to jump, we jump. Jesus is everything. He is great. He is good. He cares. He hears. And he loves. 
And so what we want to do is not just ascribe verbally or intellectually, but we want to live that out and let it be demonstrated. So we are saved not by works, but we are saved to do good works. And Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, that God prepared for good works for us to do in advance. So let's jump into our message. I've broken it down into three ways. And I'm just going to go ahead. I want to give credit where credit is due. Listen, I have studied for this message. And you have more people that have written about this text of scripture than you could ever know to do it. There are, there's so much information as I was studying for the message. What I like to do is diagram myself and then make some comments and maybe even pull some words out of here. But it's amazing that I read five different people about understanding this text and they all had the exact same outline so I decided to join the party <laughs> I was like well I mean David Platt and Stephen Davey and, and you know one, at least one at least two of those and so I'm just going like man so we broke this down in which I think it's really clear so first of all it's verses 14 through 18 we're going to call that dead faith then 19 we're going to call demonic faith and then in 20 to 26, we're going to call that dynamic faith. And that's our outline for this morning that's going to help us sort of trace our steps and where we're going and how we get there. So first off, we're going to take a look at dead faith and what does James do? He begins by asking two rhetorical questions. And the way that he's asking these is the answer is very obvious. He wants us to get to that place. Remember, these are religious people. They have said yes with their mouth, but their lives are not living it out, and he's greatly concerned. Do you really have faith in the God that we serve? Do you really have faith? So James begins in verse 14. Here we go. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The last question is a big hearty no that faith cannot save him. It's, it's rhetorical right there. So, so what good is it? What profit is it to you? The key part, I believe, of this entire part of this, these two verses is, the, is, is right after the comment. It says, what good is it, my brothers? Remember, he loves them. He's calling them my brothers. If someone says, stop right there. That right there is what we understand. This is just simply lip service with no indication of it impacting their lives. He said, you're just saying this with your mouth. And then what he's asking is he's saying, can that faith save you? We understand that if we do not have a relationship with God, we go to a real place, a literal place, and it's called hell. And the worst part of hell is that we do not die. We live in torment. And it's eternal separation from God. And James is aware that that is a real place. That is a place where there is no worship of King Jesus. And what he wants us to see is he wants us to see that that is not where we want to go. He doesn't want to guilt them or scare them into that. But what he wants us to realize is that right there is not basing yourself. It's not profiting you. It's not benefiting you. It's not what it means to have eternal fellowship with the God of creation, with King Jesus. That cannot save So they get so excited about hearing that life, that salvation is by grace through faith, that the pendulum shifts the other way to where they're just using their words. 
and their lives are not impacted. It's lip service, but not lifestyle change. And the phrase is simply a distinction of dead faith. Another way that dead faith is revealed through other texts of scripture, I'm gonna read Matthew 7, 16 through 20 in a minute, it's through fruitlessness. You know, I mean, this is pretty simple right now. Went to seminary for this, but a good tree, a good fruit tree bears what kind of fruit? Good fruit, there we go. And a bad tree bears what kind of fruit? I mean, let me tell you something. That was years of education for that one, right? You're so impressed right now. It's my goal for this morning. (laughs) Matthew 7, let me just read it to you what Jesus says here. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Plain and simple, a fruitless faith is a dead faith, and we should all be warned by that, and that's James's point. I want to warn you by just this dead faith that you're just subscribing to. Here's a quote from a pastor who says this. You know what? You can be baptized in the church. You can grow up in the church. You can sit in the church every week. You can have your wedding in the church. You can have your funeral in the church. You can close your eyes and wake up in hell. Because church doesn't save, Christ saves. Tradition doesn't save, Christ saves. Religion doesn't save, Christ saves. It's not what you do, it's not what the church does, it's what Jesus does and whether or not you trust him. James is not contrasting immature faith with someone who has mature faith. See, it's looking at, or even someone who has authentic faith. Plain and simple, he's saying, do you have a faith, do you have a faith rooted in God because that faith that is demonstrated by your actions is a faith that truly will save you. There is no in-between. Then he gives us a picture of what it looks like. Verse 15 says this, if a brother, so it's a hypothetical situation, not mainly a specific situation, but it's a hypothetical one. Let's just say there's a brother or a sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And one of you, and, and one of you says to them, notice that word, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Without giving them the things for the body, what good is that? So James is going back to this issue of taking care of people who are in need, where you're just using your, your, your words like, hey, God bless you. Hey, take care of yourself. Basically, what it's indicating is is they did not have enough clothing to keep them warm at night. They did not have enough food to really provide for them. They were in dire and desperate need, and the response is, just go in peace. God bless you. And so they were in dire, desperate need. Then, Then he asked another question. He says, what good is that? Again, another rhetorical question that we have to ask. Let me make it very clear that what, 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 we're, what we're talking about when we look at these situations here is there are times in your life and my life where we see someone and we don't stop <laughs> and we don't speak when we should. Is that evidence that we're not believers in Christ? 
No, I'm not saying when we, when we avoid those situations or we forget or we don't stop or God says stop and we don't, then we're talking right here about a continual and a habitual lifestyle. That's what he's referring to right here. Where there are certain, there are certain times where we don't stop, but this is a continual point or, or, or demonstration or characteristic that you've adopted in your life. Well, you're not helping, you're not providing, you see someone in need and you're just numb to it. God bless you, take care of yourself. You're dismissing. James says, then you have dead faith. We have to understand the role of these acts of mercy in our life are not required to be saved. But those acts of mercy that we do, that we are participate in, what they are is they are an overflow of the act of mercy that's been given to us by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so those, those, those acts of mercy that we participate in are not required for, our, required for salvation, but they certainly are evidence of our salvation and certainly an overflow of our salvation in who we say is the author and perfect of our faith. It is the gospel, it is a relationship with Jesus that motivates us. It's simply not guilt in any way, shape, and form. But he is passionate, passionate about us being able to be the ones that help and take care of those that are in need. Then he goes on to verse 17. He continues on to sort of close out this section on, on uh, dead faith. Verse 17 says this, so also, so faith also, so also faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Just in case you're wondering, I just want you to know something, it's not real. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. That right there is impossible according to James. He would say, and I will show you my faith by my works. James says, let me be frank with you. Works, deeds, actions are not optional for those who have a true life-changing encounter with King Jesus. Now we jump into verse 19, which is a verse all by itself where we have, we learn about demonic faith. Now, that's the kind of faith that I'd like to have. I have the faith of a demon, right? That's encouraging. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate that. We look at here and we say, uh, what does it say in verse 19? You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And what do they do? They shudder. When one was confronted about their lack of deeds, so let's just put, the, put, the, put this thing together right now. If you're confronted about your lack of deeds, you're, you're, um, it's presented to you, it's con you're confronted on it, and what, what's taking place? And the answer is, well, I believe in God. You've heard that before. You've talked to someone, asked them a question. What, what do you believe about God? And it's like, well, I, I believe God. And so when they're confronted about this, the response is an intellectual assent that I believe in God, I believe he's there. And James is saying it stops there. Let me, let me make sure we understand. You believe that God is one. That right there is a critical piece of the Jewish faith. If you go back to the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting with verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I, I really tried to, tried to do this in Hebrew, and it didn't work, okay? I know Adonai, 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 and I, I just didn't, it didn't work. 
And so here's what happens. This statement, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, was a thing that they knew and memorized and believed in. He's writing to a Jewish audience. This right here was pivotal to everything that they believed. This was critical. This was pivotal right now. They were ardent monotheists sitting in a polytheistic culture. Monotheism being there is one God. Poly means there is many. Where are we? We're in a polytheistic culture and world and we believe that God is one. And so what, what James is teaching them right now was you know this, but I need to let you know something. The demons know that too. They know that. They, they know the Shema. Uh, they are monotheists. They believe in God. They believe, they believe that God is one. They believe in the deity of God. They believe in the presence of heaven and hell. They believe that Christ alone is able to save, save and he is the eternal judge. And they believe all of this. And what does it make them do? It makes them shudder. It makes them tremble. And James is trying to say, if you're just simply intellectually assenting to this belief that there is one God. I need to know your company. And it's the demons. And that's not the type of faith that Christ died on the cross to set you free from. I was, um, he's urgent. You got dead faith, you got demonic faith, and he's just urgently saying, listen, you can have an understanding of Jesus without an affection for Jesus. It mere intellectual belief or reciting a belief about God does not mean that you are a follower of God. I got overwhelmed this week. I was working out at the Y and I went to the gym. I went to the basketball court um, and I was just doing my own little thing called Four Corners. It's a great workout. Uh, I could show it to you, Keen, if you're interested. <laughs> Okay, inside joke, sorry, you, you joined that party right there. I got this workout, and it's called Four Quarters. I was in the gym, and there was a man in there, and he was shooting baskets. And um, he was, let's just say, a lot older than me, okay? He was shooting baskets. He had on gray pants and a gray, like, shirt, and he had on golf gloves, and he was shooting baskets. And I was in there, and he was in there, and I just felt the Lord tell me, go share the gospel with him. So I walked over there and I said, hey, uh, how, about, um, how, about I, uh, how about I rebound for you and see how many free throws you can make? He said, that's a good deal. So he didn't have to move. I was kind of scared if he was moving. He almost fell like three times. And so he threw his shot up and he went 40%, made four out of 10. He said, well, my hour's up. I need to go sit down. And so he sat on this bleacher in the gym. And uh, I just, I said, so tell me something. Um, do, you, do you know what it means for someone to tell you that God loves you? Have you ever heard that before in your life? And he looked me in the face and he says, oh, I believe. He said, I'm a lazy Catholic. I don't. I don't go to church. I don't do any of those things. And uh, then we started and proceeded to talk about the war. And let me make sure it's very clear. We're talking about World War II. He turns 90 in May. 
He talked about Eisenhower when he was in the war and Eisenhower was getting ready to nuke China or threaten to nuke China. And he says, all of that shut it down and I got released. I didn't have to fight. My parents went through the depression. We talked and we talked and I tell you right now, it's in my mind that he intellectually assented to a belief in God while we were sitting there. I believe And James is looking at you and me this morning and he's sitting there telling us that I don't want you to have a dead faith and I don't want you to have a faith that is that of the demons. I want it to be demonstrated in your life. And as I was sitting on that bleacher, I was pleading with this guy this message going, listen, do you understand who he is and what he's done for your life? We had a great conversation. We ended the conversation. Um, I'd like for you to pray for that man. His name is Joe. Please pray for him. That he would understand what it means to have a real faith in Jesus. Saving faith is not merely an intellectual agreement. It starts within us and it is expressed in our actions. For our good and his glory. Dynamic faith. This is what James is getting us to right now. It's where he's trying to give us. He's going to give us a picture of this. Before we get into these verses, I need us to remember because this is the verse that causes a lot of confusion and I just want to, I want us, I want the Holy Spirit of God to protect us this morning so that we don't see the war. We see the unity of Paul and James. So I'm gonna go over this just one more time. Paul and James are standing back to back with each other, fighting two different enemies for a unified gospel. Paul in one hand, like Martin Luther, is fighting with the idea that we can earn our salvation. He's fighting against that. And James, on the other hand, is fighting against an easy believism where we just reduce salvation to intellectual belief. And so that's what we fight today. And what we are fighting for is that people that call Northwest Community Church their home are sitting here saying, and their faith is demonstrated by a radical obedience to everything that Christ is. That we're looking at a progress, not perfection. He's perfect. But we are making progress in us, following after him. Not with just our mouth, but our actions as well. And so let's jump into verse 20. He says, verse 20 says this, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's like, you, do, you want to sh- do you want me to show you? Again, these are another rhetorical questions. Do you, do you want me to show this to you? Well, uh, verse 14 through 19, he's He's not, he's, he's just showing them what it's not. And then I go, I want to show you what it looks like. And so dynamic faith is alive and seen in our actions. And he gives us two examples. And the first one is Abraham. Verse 21 says this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He's using a, a, a prominent, Jew, I mean the prominent Jewish figure. They know who he's talking about. Abraham, oh yeah, I know who Abraham is. He is the patriarch of our faith. Yes, I understand. It's a question that that he's asking. I'm looking for an answer again. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness as he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, this is where I ask the Lord to protect us, and I think we've done a lot of work to help us understand this verse already. 
you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. See, Abraham was called out to be that patriarch. In Genesis chapter 12, God told him, hey, Abraham, I need you to get out of here. I'm gonna bless those who bless you. I'm gonna curse those who curse you. I'm gonna make your name great among many nations. And so what did Abraham do? Well, he, Hebrews eleven eight says, by faith, Abraham obeyed to go out to a land of an inheritance. And this is the best part of that verse. And he went not knowing where he was going. And when we truly serve the risen Christ, what we do is we just say, I'm putting my yes out there, and God, you put it on the map. Abraham, that's what he did. That's what we want you to do. All of you, all of us. We want to say, God, yes, it's out there. And so here's what he says. I'm I'm going to go. I don't know where I'm going, and that's what happens. So that's one demonstration of Abraham living what? By faith. And there's another demonstration, and that's in in, uh, Genesis chapter 22, which is really what the verse is talking about. Abraham waited for a son. Was Abraham perfect? No, we we know that he wasn't. The lie, this is not my wife, it's my sister. Just tell him that. Ishmael. We, We know that part. We come right here, and it's taking a look at Isaac, and so he has Isaac, and, and God looks at him and says, I, I need you to go up to the mountain, and I need you to sacrifice your son Isaac. He's the sacrifice. I need you to go up to this mountain, and I need you to do that. So Abraham gathered the wood. Actually, he asked, to say, he asked Isaac to gather the wood. I, I, Isaac has got the wood. He's like, come on, Dad, let's go make the sacrifice. And then Isaac, I think, on the way there was like, hey, aren't we supposed to bring a ram or, or, a, or a goat or a bull or something to sacrifice? And Abraham looks at him and says, God, God will provide. So he and his men go up to Mount Moriah. They're getting to the base of the mountain. Abraham looks at all of his men and he says, hey, you guys, you stay right here. Me and the boy are gonna go up. And listen, this is so beautiful. Me and the boy, we're gonna go up to the top and we're gonna worship. <laughs> we're gonna go up there and we're gonna worship. Then it says, and we will come down. Don't miss the the pronoun, and we will come down. This is what the text says. Abraham is sitting there going, I have faith. I believe you, God. I'm taking my son up. He goes up there to sacrifice. God provides the ram in the thicket. They sacrifice him. He and his son come down from the mountain after what? Worshiping God. And James wants us to see that Abraham did not just give a verbal or intellectual assent that, God, I believe in you. It was demonstrated in his life. He wasn't perfect, and neither are we. And so what we have to do is it says, oh, that the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we have to understand what righteousness is. There is a positional righteousness when we come to faith in Christ that our position before God has been changed because we've repented of our sins and placed our faith in Christ. That is a position. God does not see our sin. He sees the Savior. That is a different position. Then there is a practical righteousness that what the scripture is teaching about and that is based off of or refers to how we live our lives. So he uses Abraham as an example to see what works that are the fruit of faith looks like and when James talks about works, he is simply talking about God glorifying obedience. He's talking about dynamic faith. And he gives us that example. Like I said, the, the verse 24, we've talked about that. We're gonna go ahead and jump down to the next, um, next verse, which is 25, where he gives Rahab as an example. 
He looks at, Rah- he looks at Rahab, and I gotta be honest with you, I'm so great, I am so grateful that, that uh, Rahab is included in this. And so Rahab, verse 25, says this, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out the other way, sent them out by another way. So that, remember the Jewish audience, they certainly understand Abraham, the stories of Abraham. They certainly understand uh, Rahab as well. Jericho was the most important Canaanite fortress city. The Canaanite was the promised land. Joshua had sent some spies out there to spy out the land. The, 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 the folks found out that they were in, in the area, in, the, in Canaanite. So in the land of Canaan. So what they do, uh, Rahab hid them. She took them, put them on top of a roof, covered up with flax, hid them, protected them. And um, that's what she did because of her faith in God. And so they safely escaped, went back into, um, went back to Joshua. They reported and they told them what had taken place. They went in and seized the city. We know that eventually Rahab married Salmon and was an Israelite from the tribe of Judah and Rahab's son was Boaz, who married Ruth, who is seen as the kinsman redeemer. So Abraham and Rahab, not perfect, both sinned, but both trusted God and both lived out their faith. And that's a dynamic faith that what God wants us to demonstrate as well. They were hearers, not doers, not dead faith, not demonic faith, but dynamic faith. In verse 26, the end of the chapter there gives us, gives us a final word. It says this, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead. Remember, you can't separate body and spirit. You can't do that. For, apart, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, say it, is, is dead. So our summary for today. Three things. Three things right now. Number one, dead faith is a profession of faith that you do not practice because you do not possess. Dead faith is a profession of faith that you do not practice because you do not possess. I pray that that is not a description of your faith today. I pray that it is not dead, but that it is alive. I pray that it is real and it is demonstrated because your sanctification, your knowledge of God, your, your being in the presence of God is a demonstration or is critical to understanding this and having true faith. Dead faith is not real faith. Well, how do you fix dead faith? Plain and simple, you get saved. You just get saved. And if you're sitting in here today going, that describes my faith, then I'm gonna ask you right here, right now, to give your life to Jesus and say yes to him. Repent and believe and just say yes. I'm not asking it to be a a verbalist. I'm not asking you to have all of the answers. What I'm asking you right now is with your mouth and with your tongue, you confess what your heart is believing right here and right now, that I I want real faith. I don't want this dead faith. And my life has been summarized by dead faith because I am, I am just not doing anything with what I profess. So we have to ask the question, is it real? And James has been hammering this and hammering this and hammering this. And then number two, faith is not mere intellectual assent. Faith is not mere intellectual assent. 
many times I have gone to people and talked to people and asked them the question about, so tell me what it means to be a Christian. And the answer is very clear. Believe in God. Believe in God. And so we have to be very careful that the word believe in John 3.16 is very different than the word believe that is associated with the demons. One leads to action. Leads to action. One does not. Then number three, I, I, I will go ahead and tell you this right now that Charles Spurgeon helped me write this. He and I had a conversation. Just kidding. He's an old dead pastor, but... He said this about faith and faith alone. He said, faith alone saves, but real faith is not alone. Say it again, faith alone saves, but real faith is not alone. I don't know after the last three weeks specifically how this has impacted you or affected you right now, but what I'm telling you right now is that James through the power of the spirit of the living, of God, living God, is saying, Northwest Community Church, what I want you to investigate and, and to define for yourself and for you to take a look at is to look at your own relationship. Remember, this is written to religious people who are going to church. It is incredibly applicable to us today. that we step back and we take a look. God, I wanna take a look at what my faith is and who my faith is in. Faith in Christ saves. I pray that when we say yes to that, we would repent, we would believe, and it would be demonstrated for our good and his glory. I love you guys so much. Let's pray. God, thank you for our team. Thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. Lord, um, we rest and we're encouraged that faith without works is dead. We're, we're, we're grateful that we can read the Bible and we can have those things that are, tell us what's wrong so that we can might fix what's right. And I pray that today, that as we sit in here right now, as we sing these songs, that we would simply rest in the fact to know that you are the way maker, that you are the miracle worker, and that you are everything that we've ever hoped you could be. You hear us, you care for us, you love us, you are there, you are good. There is simply no one like you. The demons believe in you and tremble. May we believe in you and may we worship. May we believe in you and may we demonstrate what we believe. God, Thank you for the text. Thank you for your spirit. Lord, this morning, will you confront who needs to be confronted and will you assure who needs to be assured for your glory and our good. I love you. In Jesus' name, amen.